Omega Tau. Science and Engineering in your headphones. Hello, welcome to a new episode of Omega Tau. This is another episode about physics, about large-scale physics, particle physics in particular. I had done several episodes before on the LHC and on the discovery of the Higgs. Um, I wrote about it in the book, Hint. It's available in print version now. Um, but, uh, you know, as because I spent so much time on the LHC and, and all the related experiments, I thought there are a few more episodes I need to do um, to um, satisfy my own curiosity. And um, both this one and the next one came through... Uh, nice coincidences both uh, relating to the book. So this one is an episode about the history and the development of the Atlas detector. Our guest is Peter Jenny, or Peter Jenny, he's Swiss, so I should pronounce it uh, in German. Um, he is often called the father of um, Atlas because he for a long time was the basically the head of the collaboration that built it. I got in touch with him because I uh, asked him um, or sent him an email and asked him to proofread uh, some parts of the book and he agreed and he gave me very useful feedback and then I asked him, you know, do you want to do an episode and he agreed as well and so that's what you're going to hear today. The next episode will then be about very specific science in the context of uh, Atlas with uh, a PhD student, Philipp Windischhofer. Um, he also proofread stuff in the book. He's also a listener. Um, and we're going to nerd out on physics. Very, actually very, very interesting. But before we do that, we'll set a lot of context about the Atlas experiment. It's really fascinating how... Um, a complex machine like that with lots of different collaborators from uh, many countries, how this actually gets built. So we, we talk not just about the machine and the engineering, but also about the organization and the financing and basically the community management that uh, makes something like that possible. All right, let's get started. So good morning. My name is Peter Jenny. I am a Swiss particle physicist, experimental particle physicist. Now, in principle, I'm retired, but I'm still uh, very much active and following uh, what's going on at CERN, and in particular in the project we are going to talk about, the LHC and the ATLAS experiment. Maybe just very briefly, I have uh, studied the, the first part in the University of Bern, where I studied, uh, well, physics, of course, and astroparticle physics, astronomy, and uh, mathematics in, in the additional disciplines. And then I made my thesis, well, with an experiment already at CERN, at the European Laboratory for Particle Physics, at its smallest machine at that time. And um, I made the PhD at the ETH Zurich. And then I was, uh, I was first a fellow at CERN and later uh, a staff member. And in between, I have been about 
two and a half years in California at the Stanford Linear Accelerator and uh, then came back to CERN as a first as a staff physicist and then later as a senior staff physicist and I have been involved in the collider experiments many generations at CERN but rather uh, in responsibility functions already in the what is called the UA2 experiment where the intermediate vector bosons the Z and the W boson were discovered. We will come to that, I guess, at some point. That was in the the, uh, 80s. And then already in the early 80s, well, I was very much interested in future colliders and in particular in first ideas about the Large Hadron Collider. So that uh, between the running experiment and uh, the future, I was uh, sharing in a way my time. I was also in <clears throat> advisory committees in the in the United States for this SSC, the famous uh, mm-hmm. superconducting super collider. We can also talk about that. Yep. Many histories about this, and and then uh, from the beginning, I was among the core group uh, promoting an experiment for the LHC. And then, okay, from then on, we can talk with more details afterwards. Exactly, because that that experiment you you just mentioned is is ATLAS. Yeah. One of the two large general purpose uh, directors, detectors on the LHC. Exactly. One thing you probably might have mentioned is that you were the... um, project leader of Atlas uh, during its design and construction. Um, and I think just until it went live, I don't exactly understand the timing. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that, that's, uh, well, of course, I was in a way lucky to be at the right time and at the right place. Yes, I started uh, coordinating a very loose, very informal community collaboration in in the late 80s, which became very quickly very big because people were really interested. They wanted to go for an experiment at this uh, fantastic machine, which finally got into life, the LHC. And uh, so if you want what has become Atlas, we started informally in 19... 19- Eighty-nine, uh, actually at the at the conference at the meeting in Barcelona in October, to be very precise. Mm-hmm. Then, <clears throat> just to give a ne- next stage, well, there were many discussions and so. But in uh, spring 92, 1992, there was uh, CERN was really calling for what is called expression of interest for different groupings were um, well presenting in a meeting in in Evian not so far from Geneva at the lake of uh, Geneva in a big meeting their proposals and uh, then we were one of the experiments invited to work out a somewhat more 
detailed expression of interest that was in October 1992, which, of course, you needed somebody to coordinate this, and we will come to that. Uh, this, uh, the, my colleagues elected me. I mean, my colleagues means already something like 80 different institutions, universities. Mm-hmm. At that time, mainly from Europe, but also already a few from overseas. And from then on, over these different steps, it was a long process to peer review the experiment to finally get the financing. We will maybe talk about that until, I can be very precise, until February 2009, uh, I was then re-elected quite a few times uh, as project leader, as spokesperson, as we say it. We are very quite democratic and we don't really like to say uh, too much stress the position of the director of the experiment. But in in industry or so, uh, they will call this a CEO. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. So then, uh, and... I was very happy that at that time, which was really a very long time, I think the longest ever for the spokesperson of an experiment, uh, I was very happy that my one of the two WT spokespersons, which I had at that time, uh, was elected to take, uh, take the baton and uh, go on, namely, uh, so Fabiola Cianotti, uh, so we switched from she be he, first me being the boss, she is became the boss, so that was very nice. And um, actually, she is now the director general, the of, boss, boss, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're of, we're often joking about this uh, these uh, positions of the boss, who is the boss, and so yeah. <laughs> of course I'm. I'm I'm uh, very much cons- consulting her if she wants. Sometimes she does, and uh, so we have kept a very good, good relation. And I'm very happy. That's one of the things we can also talk about. I think in these projects and in general, it's always good if one builds up uh, successors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so that's yeah. a long a long answer to your short question. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. So uh, one thing that's interesting to point out is that it was almost exactly 20 years between the initial ideas for this machine and um, its first light, as the astronomers would say. I don't know how you, you call that in... Yeah, even, even more. more you yeah. Know? yeah, because I think a crucial a crucial moment for the... Large Hadron Collider was really 1984, because at that time, uh, this was just essentially one or two years after the discovery of the W and Z bosons in the smaller proton-antiproton collider at CERN. Uh, There was a workshop in Lausanne, uh, which was organized not only by CERN, but there is a is a committee which is called ECFA, European Committee for Future Accelerators, and this still exists. And already at that time, one was looking forward to make some kind of strategy what would come later on. 
one has to imagine that at this time, one of the, the major machines, which was then built and run in the 1990s at CERN, the Large Electron-Positron Collider, it was not yet built, the tunnel. And so, but one was already thinking in 1984, uh, one, what could one eventually use this tunnel for a mm -hmm. follow-up machine later on? So uh, I would say the first time one was really also using the name LHC was in 1984. And uh, then, uh, well, uh, for the experiment, that came a bit later, as I said, 89 or yep. so. Yep. So very often in a, when talking with, uh, with students, and, and that's, of course, my, my great pleasure to, to uh, talk a lot and work with students, I tell them, look, uh, when we started, you were not yet born. You were still in the sky. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And that is also an explanation why, even though the LHC will run until at least the 2030s, maybe a bit longer, people are already discussing and planning and developing technologies for its successor, right? The future circular collider or the, the click, depending on which one will kind of win, linear or circular. Um, so that's already has been going on for a while, even though um, LHC is still being upgraded. So it ha these have a long lead time. Yes. Yeah, the development is takes a lot of time. It takes also a lot of time, of course, to build the consensus in the community. And, uh, well, you can imagine it also takes a lot of time to make the convincing arguments with, uh, with the people who have to, I mean, the governments, after all, who have to pay for the machine yeah. to build up a uh, strong uh, collaboration. For the LHC, it was mainly European. Of course, for the next generation, this must be much more uh, worldwide. So it must be a consensus really yeah. from different regions. And one has also, of course, to, to consider interests in different regions, maybe different large infrastructure facilities, how one calls these, uh, should be shared somewhat in a reasonable way in, in, different, in different continents or so. Yeah. So it's clear we are just at a very uh, special situation now where one realizes how lucky we were that we could actually so far uh, easily collaborate with different continents, with different countries, with different regions. Of course, now in this period, of the coronavirus, uh, that, uh, well, one has to think, how will this be in the future? And I hope very much it will be again possible, of course, yes. because it's very essential that all the, the resources, human resources, uh, and all, of course, also financial resources are pulled together. These facilities are so big and, and expensive Yep. One needs really a consensus and not just from one continent, really from all the, the regions. Yeah. And in contrast to, 
let's say, normal research organizations, you can't say, okay, let's build two smaller, cheaper accelerators on different continents, let's say, and then just pull the results. That doesn't work. You need one, you need big machines to get to the energy. So it's really important, like with big telescopes, that you really pool resources. It's not like AI research where you can have basically an office <laughs> anywhere and then the world writes papers and inspires each other. You actually need the big machines. That's absolutely correct. Now, particle physics, of course, advances also on on some other fronts. Of the, energy, the energy frontier, this is one of the... The frontiers and there, yes, that's, that's, these are unique instruments you need. Then there are also uh, progress from, for example, very high intensity machine. When you have high intensity, that means you can look for very rare events. Mm -hmm. Intensity means a lot of particles who collide, so... The more particles you collide, of course, the more possible it becomes to see something which happens only very, very, very rarely, maybe one in 10 to the 19 collisions or something yeah. like that. So there are uh, specific machines of that type, which, of course, can be built maybe at some in some other continent, or there are also uh, very dedicated machines where one collides electrons and positrons, which are point-like elementary particles, whereas in the LHC or in the possible future uh, circular collider, if we talk about the Hadron machine, one collides protons, which are composite particles, and uh, so it's a bit more uh, it's a kind of a different basic processes, some of them, which happen. And so there can be a complementarity in that respect also. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so let's um, get back to, to ATLAS. And we should probably start by describing it briefly. Um, my listeners have had exposure to LHC and uh, the basic idea of collisions and tracking particles and determining their momentum through bending and magnets and stuff. But we should probably still uh, recap the most important components of ATLAS so we can then later, for example, also discuss a little bit how the design of those changed and evolved during its development. So can you give us a 10,000-foot, as they say, overview over the machine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... Um, well, Atlas is a very big, if you want, box. It's not a box, but it's it's a it's a very big device which is symmetrically arranged, kind of around the point where the particles collide. In fact, it's it's more like a cylinder, a cylinder which is uh, lying on the ground, if you want, and the particles. Uh, come along the axis of the cylinder and uh, they collide in the center of the cylinder. Now, what is this cylinder? This cylinder has many uh, layers in the central part, kind of sub-cylinders, if you want, like an onion, one after mm -hmm. the other, which have different functions. In the inner part... There are 
very precise semiconductor elements, typically of the size um, smaller than millimeters of something like 50 microns to 200 microns, 0.05 millimeters times 0.2 millimeters. And there are many of them. There are something like, well, in, in, in a few layers, something like uh, almost 100 million such pixels, as we call them. Then there are uh, silicon strips, which have a similar function. They are a bit bigger, but still in the sub-millimeter uh, dimensions, uh, at least in one dimension. Yeah. And these are, in the center are cylinders, typically something like a cylinder almost six meter long, three meters on either side of the central point, and the radius of the order of uh, one meter 20, let's say. And then uh, around this part, there is a solenoidal magnet. Maybe uh, the listeners are familiar with the solenoid. This is a, you take essentially a wire and <clears throat> you uh, wind it around some cylinder, for example, and if you have a current, then you produce a magnetic field. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and this inner detector, tracking detector, which I described, uh, silicon pixels and strips, they are inside this magnetic field because their purpose is to uh, give a signal of all the charged particles which are produced at the collision. And these charged particles, they are uh, deviated in the magnetic field. So one measures the deviation in the magnetic field, which gives us a measure uh, of their momentum. It's basically the, the right-hand rule that people might remember from school. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, if a particle has a little momentum, then it will curve a lot. And if it has a very high momentum, it will be almost a straight line, but yeah. not completely. So you need to measure this almost straight line with high precision if you want to measure also a high momentum particle. So that's the innermost layer, up to, let's say, a radius of 1 meter 25 or so. And then around that is a device which we call electromagnetic calorimeter. In the electromagnetic calorimeter, we measure the energy deposited by particles which interact electromagnetically. Therefore, the name. Calorimeter, you could think it measures heat, but this is not really true. It measures the energy which yeah. is deposited. Yeah. So, um, and heat, of course, is also energy, but that's a historical name. So in the case of uh, Atlas, this is a very special uh, technology which is used for that. It's called a liquid argon sampling calorimeter. That means it uses as a medium to get an electric signal, uses liquid argon, which is at about 80 degree Kelvin, uh, so it's a bit special. And then there are lead plates. 
in a special geometry in the case of, of the uh, Atlas experiment, where you can measure in, and that is also segmented, so that you know uh, where a particle has deposited electromagnetic energy. You know this in space, you know how strong this signal is, it's an electrical signal which you amplify and detect. Uh, so you know the energy after you have calibrated this uh, equivalence between signal and, and uh, the, the energy. And you also know actually whether it was an electron, electron or a positron. These are charged particles which would give a track also in this inner tracking detector where we both measure the momentum by the bending and then the energy in the electromagnetic calorimeter. So we have a cross check mm -hmm. and can be sure it's an electron. Or maybe we have such an energy deposition in the calorimeter and no track. And what could that be? Well, that's the photon. The photon also reacts electromagnetically, but it does not leave any track in the semiconductor elements of the tracking system because it's a neutral particle. So, so that's uh, up to a radius of uh, about, uh, well, two and a half meters or so, typically a bit more. And then comes the second part of the calorimeter. And that's the massive part. It's called the hadronic calorimeter because most of the particles actually are hadronically, strongly interacting particles, hadrons, mainly pions, pi plus or, or pi minus, or protons, neutrons or so. And there you need a lot of matter to absorb them and again to get a signal. In the case of ATLAS, again, a very special development uh, this is kind of a alternating structure which has steel and then plastic scintillator. Plastic scintillator, when uh, a particle interacts hadronically in the iron, it produces secondary particles which go through this plastic scintillator which produce light and then we have fibers which collect that light. And then outside of the detector, we have what is called photomultiplier, namely uh, devices which transmit the light into an electrical signal. And again, the more light, the larger was obviously the hadronic cascade, which was produced. And therefore, also the energy of this hadron was, was large. That's how you... You measure this. So that's a hadronic calorimeter, but that's not finished. <laughs> after, after that comes the very big layer in the case of Atlas, which is a large supraconducting toroid magnet, which produces essentially a big volume of magnetic field where we have again uh, devices, chambers, we call them, where we can measure the bending of the only charged particle which goes through all this matter 
without having strongly interacted. So it's neither an electron nor a hadron. These are the muons. The muons are the heavy brothers or sisters of the electron and the uh, positron. Maybe we will come to talk about the family of particles and you have already introduced them, I guess, in other yes. sessions. And these muons are a particularly uh, clean signature for maybe new physics, for example, also the Higgs, Higgs boson, because outside of these uh, calorimeters, there are almost no other particles remaining except for, for these uh, muons, except also for, by the way, another particle, the neutrinos, which are uh, the neutral colleagues of the electron or the muons, but which are neutral and which goes through all the detector, which we don't see directly. Yep. And see them indirectly, but not, not directly. So to give you, this, this is in the, in the central part of the cylinder. Then in the forward and the both, both ends of the cylinder, the devices are, uh, well, in a way, inverted in the sense that there are no more cylindrical layers, but they are like, uh, well, like, like uh, how do you say well, that? Well, basically the lid on a trash can, right? Yeah, yeah in, in the forward and backward direction, yeah. but it's the same type of, of particle, yeah. of uh, particle detected. Now, just to, to put you the dimensions, the length of this whole cylinder is about 45 meters, and uh, the height Overall diameter is about 25 meters. And uh, to give you maybe another number, the, the weight of the Atlas detector is actually not so heavy. It's about 7,000 tons. 7,000 tons, that's about, I've learned, the same weight as the Eiffel Tower. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, well, you can say it's a lot, but it's now we were, you were already mentioning it. There are two such uh, experiments of general purpose big tech experiments. There's the CMS, compact muon solenoid. Actually, that has much more iron because it has a magnet which is based on a very different technology, is about twice of that weight. And I can give you a little anecdote on this because it's smaller a little bit. It's still a big experiment and a very good and complementary experiment, but it has about twice the uh, the weight and smaller. So sometimes the the joke, of course, more from the Atlas side, <laughs> say this joke is if you would put actually a skin around the Atlas detector and uh, you will put it on the lake, it would float <laughs> because it's it's so big, even with the 7,000 tons. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you will put the same thing on the smaller, uh, smaller CMS experiment, which is heavier, it would sink. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, my, my CMS friends do not like so much this, uh, this comparison. And, of course, it's completely meaningless. It's just a joke. Sure. 
Yeah, but it does highlight that the idea was to build two different detectors with which basically do do the same thing, but they do it in slightly different complementary ways, in ways where one is maybe more precise for this particular kind of particle, whereas the other is maybe more precise in measuring the energy of this other one. So that's kind of the idea. Yeah, well, when I have to object immediately on the slide, <laughs> okay. so, uh, it's, it's absolutely true that the basic physics goals and uh, are the same. They are both experiments which have been conceived to exploit essentially all the potential of offered by, by the LHC, by this fantastic machine. So they are called general purpose detectors. There were other ideas, and uh, clearly in the peer reviewing process, of uh, the CERN committees or so, but also among ourselves. We knew that it's uh, very unlikely that you would build two times the same, exactly the same detector. In fact, I think it's a, it's a very important fundamental principle of science that one, if one can, one should have two independent uh, measurements, in particular, if you want to pretend having found something new, like like the Higgs boson or so, that you have independent technologies, because then you assure yourself also that it's not due to some uh, fluke, maybe of uh, of of your detector or. Uh, that you see some signal, but that it's really uh, something completely uh, established. Now, to that one can maybe say the following, that uh, at the time of the lab experiment, there were four experiments. Well, community was strong enough in terms of... uh, people and in terms of resources. But uh, there was some some criticism that maybe four experiment is really a bit too much. And uh, clearly it turns out that having uh, two experiments seems to be a very uh, necessary but also sufficient uh, thing to establish independent uh, measurements. Now, of course, as I said, you want uh, also as a, as a certain management or so, you want if possible uh, two complementary different technologies. Of course, again, I can maybe for, for, the, um, for the anecdote, I can also tell you that uh, not an argument which, which we agreed in Atlas, but which the CERN management sometimes said, well, you know, we want to be sure that at least one of the experiments works. <laughs> <laughs> this was, of course, a kind of a, of an incentive to to make sure that you build an experiment which at yeah. the end technically, technically also works. You're course. the one that works and the other ones fail. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, but okay, of course, 
what it turns out is both work and work uh, works very well. And so yeah. obviously that's what you want yeah. at the end, yeah. <laughs> clearly. And uh, so, yes, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental thing. And, and that is uh, certainly something which uh, having a, a ring machine, a collider where particles go in a racetrack mm -hmm. around the ring, like in the LHC, uh, where they can be brought at more than one point to collision. This is a big advantage. Right. And uh, in the discussion of, um, of future collider, this is an argument which comes in. It's, uh, it's certainly one of the issues when considering a linear collider that, uh, well, people sometimes consider to have still two experiments, but um, kind of uh, alternating yeah. because then there is only one point where particles collide. Uh, of course, the disadvantage is that one experiment can only collect data at most for half of the time. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the ring collider, you can have several experiments uh, which col which collect at the same time without uh, taking away the number of collision one or the other would would collect. Yeah. In fact, on the LHC, then the advantage was also we have only talked so far from, and we will continue talking about Atlas and CMS. These are the big general purpose detectors, as I said, to exploit the full potential. Uh, but then it was realized that there are uh, very interesting, dedicated experiments which can also be made. Uh, in addition, um, they don't use the full intensity of the machine, but, but some. Uh, and one is called LHCB, which in particular studies um, the B quark uh, properties, and one is called uh, ALICE, which is exploiting particularly when one collides heavy nuclei, in fact, essentially lead nuclei in the LHC. LA I just want to say CMS and Atlas, of course, also study these interactions, yeah. but, uh, well, maybe not with uh, the same dedicated instruments as uh, the other two for their particular things. So yeah. they are complementary in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, let's talk about um, what triggered the development or the design of these um, detectors and specifically of Atlas. So what was the state of physics at the time? Obviously, the, the standard model theoretically was defined, was established. And as you said... Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but um, at the time, you, you mentioned before the experiments UA1 and UA2 and the discovery of Z and W. So that was kind of the, the experimental kind of state of the world and then my impression was that 
although the LHC was not specifically built as a Higgs machine, certainly the 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 intent to find discovered Higgs boson was kind of a driver because that was the missing experimental aspect of the standard model. Is, is that kind of fair to say? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah in, in, in general, this is roughly true, but let me specify a bit more. Yeah. In the sense, you're right, at some point, namely 82, 83, the uh, intermediate vector bosons, the W and C, were discovered by the UA1 and UA2 experiment. Now, uh, that was certainly a very important step in establishing uh, the standard model. But it was even something else was very important. Namely, these were the first time that people really believed that with Hadron Colliders, you can actually... Uh, in a clean way, uh, establish and discover uh, new heavy particles. Mm -hmm. In the early 80s or so, very early 80s, there was a, somehow a belief that, well, the hadron collisions, because the protons, as we said, are not elementary, so there's always a lot of additional tracks in, in the collisions, and uh, there were the people feared that one would not be able to build an instrument which would fish out, so to speak, in an unambiguous way, the WNC. So when this happened, I think the mind changed for many people that clearly one, one can do this. UA1 and UA2 were instruments or detectors at which accelerator? So they were at the CERN P-bar-P collider. Okay. So CERN, that was in the... Um, very late uh, 70s and then early early 80s uh, came the so CERN had already the the machine which uh, the the SPS super synchrotron which accelerated beams up to 400 450 GV to put to let them impact on a target mm -hmm. and then came the the brilliant idea of uh, Carlo Rubia Peter McIntyre or so, but Carlo Rubia is certainly one of the you know, of the very leading figures who said, well, we have this ring accelerator. Why not using, if you take, they, they accelerate protons in one direction, like, for example, clockwise, and why not using antiprotons and inject them in the other way around Because with the same magnet structure, they would go and the, they would be just bent correctly in the other way around and bring them into collision. Of course, <laughs> the problem was to, to establish, to get some antiprotons and so. So there was a big, uh, big development of uh, how to produce antiprotons in sufficient amounts, store them, pre-accelerate them, put them in the machine and so. And uh, that finally worked also thanks to, to an engineer who had many, many brilliant ideas how to, to operate such an antiproton collector and everything, Simon van der Meer. Mm -hmm. And that, when the W and C were discovered, uh, correctly for 
for this uh, this ideas and work both Carlo Rubia and uh, Simon van der Meer then uh, <clears throat> got the Nobel Prize. So it was really, uh, I think it was very nice that, that in this particular case, the huge impact of uh, clever engineering was, uh, was also recognized mm-hmm. because these experiments are, and accelerators, they certainly deserve the same amount of, of credit like the physicists making uh, making their detector and then the analysis. And if I can just add in this, maybe at that time was less important yet, but today, of course, on the same, in the same basket between the, the engineers, the machine physicists, the experimenters, one really also has to put the computing mm-hmm. uh, infrastructure people because it's it's fantastic uh, what the the data processing the methods uh, this worldwide web uh, without that we would not have of course made discoveries so fast yep. Yeah, and you, you mentioned before the complexity of proton-proton collisions, sometimes also compared to trash can collisions, where all kinds of particles, <laughs> be, because the elementary gluons... Watches, yeah. I think it's Feynman who said once, well, it's like uh, smashing two Swi- Swiss watches. <laughs> into each other okay and of course the way how you still get uh, a meaningful signal how you reconstruct what has actually happened in the uh, in the collision is by a lot of statistics and analysis and calculation calibration and computation that's where this comes back in so i probably the the computing power is probably even more critical for a hadron collider compared to an electron or or lepton collider because there's just more complexity to make sense of yeah i think that personally i would say so now my my friends from who working on on click for example for for future Mm -hmm. uh, electron positron colliders or so of course their detector ideas these are all ideas at the moment they are also rather complex and it's they tell me no you cannot tell us uh, we our analysis will be simple or so there's also a lot of data Mm. but but i i think basically you're you're right there is more in the uh in the hadron collisions of course again we should not be uh, we should be humble enough to see what happens in other big uh, infrastructure thing, like for example in uh, radio astronomy or so, where also huge amount of data are, are have to be treated and and I think there is good cross fertilization between different fields. I just wanted to say one thing, of course, it's computing power and methods and, and uh, what has really taken off in this last uh, year or years, but mainly almost year, is uh, the very strong application of machine learning mm-hmm. and so this type of thing. So for an old-fashioned physicist like me, I I'm sometimes feel almost a bit lost. <laughs> yeah. But but the, the nice thing is then one talks with the young people and and then 
still, of course, it's the physics physics behind uh, what one wants to see. So one one has still something to say. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so so the W and Z bosons they were uh, discovered at UA one and UA two, which were also experiments in a hadron collider context, and that uh, gave the community, as you say, the let's say optimism or or the the belief that yes. that a larger hadron colliding machine would help also discover the missing uh, yeah. stuff in the standard model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that that's absolutely true, and. And uh, this these discoveries of the W and C, that they, they were also the initiator in a certain sense for this project in the United States, yeah. the, the SSC. There was a famous uh, New York Times uh, title, uh, well, uh, Europe W and uh, and uh, W discovery and. And uh, US not even the C zero or something mm. like that. Yeah, yeah. No. So yes, that was certainly uh, an initiator for this kind of project. Mm. And and before we continue the the Atlas story, UA one and UA two were they also the kind of onion shaped uh, bending no. style? No. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's an interesting thing and. Uh, Something I, I like sometimes when I give lectures to, to show, there is clearly a very strong uh, learning from the particle physicists how to make actually, uh, how to conceive these experiments. They were the first approximation of the onion shape, but not really. UA1 was kind of a, a box. Mm-hmm. It was a dipole magnet, which was means that the field was not symmetric around the axis of uh, the where the beam collide mm-hmm. come from. That means that there are some some uh, azimuth angles where there was no field essentially and some where the field was good. And that's certainly not homogeneous and, and not ideal at all. And uh, however, what they already tried to do is a bit to to have everywhere detectors. So one has learned. There were previous, even previous hadron colliders, the intersecting storage ring and CERN, and there also the, the experiments were were by far not sufficiently good in that sense as we compare them to to the experiments now. So and then UI two, it was kind of onion-shaped in the central part. I was in, in UA2, but we had, uh, well, it had to be also fitting into some budget and so and so. In the forward direction, there was a lot of empty space. That means, for example, when you wanted to, to look for events where you really need to measure all the energy released or the transverse energy transverse to the axis of the collisions, mm-hmm. you were never sure if if there was maybe just a lot of energy going into a place where you had no detector, or this was due to, for example, a neutrino, high energy neutrino, which escaped. So uh, they were first approximations, I would say, but one clearly understood those who were when we were working on 
on conceptual LHC detectors that uh, this has to be different. Mm -hmm. Then there is a big controversy about the in which direction the magnetic fields should be. And uh, so, in fact, one of the things why I objected when you said CMS and Atlas mm -hmm. are slightly different, they are, they are fundamentally different in a way of the magnetic fields, in particular for the muon detectors. Mm -hmm. uh, Atlas has a toroidal field, which is, uh, if you want, perpendicular at any place to the axis of the uh, colliding beams. And then we have just a small solenoid, relatively speaking, six meter long and two meter fifty diameter in the inner part around the tracking detector. Whereas CMS has taken a different approach, a very big, strong solenoidal field everywhere, uh, which, of course, is a, I don't want to say simpler, simple, but a, a somewhat simpler com configuration, mm -hmm. however, has then other disadvantages because, uh, so in that sense, uh, one has, well, one has learned a lot from the UA1, UA2 uh, experiments. And in fact, of course, the proponents for uh, CMS and for Atlas, well, Michel de la Negra, Jim Verdi in, uh, in CMS, they were, they were both in, in UA1, uh, myself and some colleagues, we were in uh, UA2. So it's not completely by chance, I think, that the initial drivers maybe came from from these earlier experiments mm -hmm. yeah and in terms of uh, uh, accelerators at the time when um, the LHC and its experiments were conceived you had the 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 lab already in the tunnel I guess I mean I guess no no, no that, okay well okay that's interesting <laughs> uh, well when the, in the very early phase Lab was still constru construction. Okay. Constructed. But then, yes, well, uh, in, in the more mature phase, lab was, was working. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so the lab is an electron positron collider in the same tunnel that later would be inhabited by the LHC. Yeah. And just for, for final context, uh, the US was um, kind of in the process of building the super colliding, no, superconducting super collider, the SSC. You yeah. mentioned it before. Um, and that was uh, supposed to have a much higher energy than the LHC, but it was then cancelled for I don't know exactly why. So how did that? Yeah, okay. How did that 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 parallel development and then cancellation affect the LHC and its detectors? Well, that's, that's an interesting story in a way. So the uh, the SSC really as I mentioned, got the boost when the uh, UA1, UA2 experiments in the early 80s uh, discovered the WZ. So the US really said, we have to get our act together. And <laughs> so they wanted to make the very big step. And uh, they went into designing and start building this SSC machine, which uh, there was a lot of struggle where to put it and so uh, so they put uh, finally it was decided 
because the bid of Texas was the best to put it in Texas. And that would have been a machine which is about 80 kilometer diam- uh, length of the tunnel, so much more than the LHC, and an energy of uh, 40 TV. So again, much three times almost the energy of the of the LHC. Less intensity, but uh, an order of magnitude less intensity. So this was started to being built. There was also a advisory committee, and I was in this advisory committee in the first few years. However, what one saw is that it was very much conceived purely as a U.S. Uh, US project. Mm-hmm. Well, contributions were welcome from outside, but without being also involved really in the management or so. And what really killed it in a way was that the costs were escalating. This is very nicely documented in a book, which is called Tunnel Visions, by the way. uh, It started up with maybe $4 billion, and then at some point... In the early 90s, it started very early 90s to be more than 10, 10, 12 billions or so. And then at some point, Congress, namely in uh, 93, canceled it. Because also the uh, somehow speculated external contributions were much below what what they expected. there was a, apparently also a, a competition with the space station or so, but mm-hmm. uh, I think there was, at that time when, when it was cancelled, would it have been uh, from the beginning conceived in a somewhat more solid financial uh, way and with better, uh, with better international collaboration? Uh, well, it could have gone ahead. In fact, they had something like I don't order of eighteen kilometers, or maybe tunnel of the eighty. So eighty kilometers were already built. There were also, uh, of course, a lot of sample magnets were developed and things like that. So, yeah, this is uh, for the particle physics kind of a lesson and, and mm-hmm. well, uh, a, a kind of a sad story in a way, of course. We should never be happy when uh, something fails. But I think one one has learned. And, and CERN, of course, being already always a multinational laboratory, uh, had a somewhat better starting position, if you want, but... Uh, I mean, also from the spirit. Now, CERN at that time was, uh, there was the LEP project, which was approved and the tunnel was being built, LEP experiments being built. So the discussion at CERN was was really uh, easier in the sense that there was a boundary condition which, which one had to see or convince oneself that 
one can work with. And, mm-hmm. and that was, again, I would say, giving a lot of credit to Carlo Rubia, who pushed for saying, well, we can achieve similar uh, results as would the SSC with a higher energy, we go to a higher intensity. Yeah. So the LHC uh, was from the beginning conceived with a tenfold intensity. And now it's even essentially a hundred times more what what will be in the upgrade. Uh, so you can still do uh, essentially the same the same physics. It meant, however, that the experiments became more difficult. And of course, Rubia, generous as he is, he said, okay, that's the experimenter's problem. <laughs> right. yeah. Well, he is also an experimenter, so he, he somehow thought that one can uh, maybe make up yeah. with clever ideas or so. I, mean, I found this, uh, this comparison between um, peak energy and luminosity really interesting because, of course, um, with you, you cannot compensate everything like you cannot compensate all advantages of higher energy with more luminosity because if your particles that you want to create are at a a mass or energy that that you just can't get then you lose but but on the other side um the higher luminosity gives you a higher probability of seeing rare events so if your accelerator is fundamentally capable of delivering let's say the energy for a higgs then if you have more luminosity, you get it more often, you get to your five sigmas quicker, and therefore you you, you can discover faster, if you will. Um, yeah, yeah. well, that's already true somewhat for, for the Higgs. Of course, the probability to produce Higgs is also somewhat higher at higher energy, yeah. but it, it turns out, of course, at that time, nobody really knew how heavy the Higgs is. That's something we should come to, yep. because... In the in the eighties, we did not know how heavy the Higgs is, so we had to conceive an experiment which would be these general purpose detectors, which are ready to discover a Higgs from very roughly speaking hundred GV, hundred times the proton mass, if you if you want, up to thousand times uh, roughly speaking, one TV. So. Uh, of course, if the Higgs would be uh, one TV, then the difference between 40 TV that yeah. the SSC would have had and uh, the, the 13 TV we have now at the LHC would have been very significant. Uh, yeah. Now with 125 GV, the Higgs is actually quite light. Uh, then the cross-section would still would have been higher, but the, the gain would not have been so big. Of course, you are absolutely right. If you want to see a particle with a 20 TV mass, uh, this would not be possible at the LHC with whatever uh, luminosity yep. intensity you, you put yeah. in. So that that's true. So in some sense, the physics community was lucky that the Higgs was at an energy where with Higgs's performance, you get enough collisions through luminosity to, to, to be able to detect it in reasonable time, right? If it would have been yeah. heavier, it would have been harder. 
Well, no, no, it would still, we, we, we proved to get the experiments approved or so, we proved that up to one TV it was okay. We would, it would have gone a bit slower. Exactly, yeah. But, but we would have, uh, the, by now we would have really, <laughs> right. but I think I can say with confidence, we would have uh, seen the Higgs as well. Yeah. This is, by the way, interesting in the history is because then at some point, uh, LEP started getting into operation, mm-hmm. 89 or so, in the very early 90s in full full glory. And uh, then there came indirect hints, evidence, within the standard model that the Higgs is most likely actually quite light, something like between 100 and 180 GV or so. So, uh, but this was in the early, early 90s and, well, uh, clearly it was almost, uh, I would say it was good foresight that um, people have, both in the CMS detector with crystals and in Atlas with this liquid argon, highly granular calorimeter, have foreseen electromagnetic calorimeters which are able to to work also uh, in this low mass mm-hmm. regime. Mm-hmm. 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 So, uh, but 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 um, when we conceived it, we didn't re- well very often. For example, on the on the very early. Uh, documents or so on the front page, we usually show the Higgs peak at uh, at 450 GV, mm-hmm. for example, or things like that. So we had no particular uh, prejudice or, well, we had no hint. <laughs> we are scientists. We had no reason to believe it is as low as it is. Then it came uh, with, with the first uh, lab results and uh, precision measurements of both the the W mass, but then also of the top mass. And we must give, of course, uh, credit to our uh, U.S. colleagues for for the top uh, discovery. At Tevatron, right? Yeah, yeah, at the Tevatron. All right, so the, the detectors were not built specifically for Higgs, right? They are general purpose. Yeah, but well... But but usually when you when you propose the building of such expensive and sophisticated machines, you do have a science case, right? You do explain what it is you want to observe, um, and and I'm sure uh, Higgs was was in that list, right? Yeah, at the top of the exactly. List. So what else was in that list, and and to what degree did did the Higgs it, at its suspected ranges? You already kind of hinted at it, um, influence the design of the detectors. It was very clear the Higgs was the must. Yeah. And uh, it was the one of the very important, what we call benchmark uh, processes. And when the review committees looked at this different expression of interest, and then when we made letter of intent before really approving us, uh, we had to... Uh, show results from simulation to this that uh, in any in any case we would see the Higgs if it exists of course nobody knew it could could also have been that but at least you would have had to make an experiment which uh, was capable 
to see the Higgs between, as I said, the range which was possible between 100 GV and 1 TV. But then, okay, it's a bit of a question of taste already. We were uh, and I was certainly among them very much interested to have an experiment which is very performant in seeing supersymmetry. Supersymmetry mm-hmm. uh, was uh, very much uh, liked by theoretician, by all the, f- the physicists because of its, uh, its nice uh, features and in order to see supersymmetry, you need very good uh, hermetic hadronic calorimetry to see if there are uh, particles which escape the detector without leaving any trace. Yep. But let me explain a little bit. This is uh, in in all the at least the basic supersymmetric scenarios. The lightest supersymmetric particle is a neutral particle, which uh, interacts only very, very weakly with matter. So it will just escape the the detector. Now, as I mentioned, we have already one particle which does that. These are this is the neutrino, mm-hmm. or to be precise, there are three three varieties of neutrinos, and of course we know very well now in the experiment how it reacts to how, how we see indirectly these neutrinos. So that was one of the reasons of the uh, layout also of the ATLAS experiments. Now, this uh, in the beginning was really purely because of of the beauty of, this, of supersymmetry, but then this argument became even much stronger because people more and more realized that um, this lightest supersymmetric particle, this neutral particle, could also be, and people believed at some point, this still believe, this could be the uh, famous particle explaining the dark matter in the universe. This wimp, right? <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, yeah. A great name. Well, they could be, and of course, nobody knows uh, how heavy it is and so on. The idea, roughly speaking, is that just very shortly after the Big Bang, something like 10 to the minus 11 seconds or so after the Big Bang, there were a lot of particle reactions going on roughly in the energy range of the LHC. And it could have been that at that time, a lot of supersymmetric particles were produced. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore, in their decay chains, a lot of these uh, neutral, lightest supersymmetric particles, well, would have been around. And when the universe cooled down very quickly, they, they're they still around. And then they started uh, accumulating around galaxies and, and then we talk with with all the uh, all the people uh, making all these simulations or so for for galaxy formation or so. So, but actually, we didn't say that yet in the very early uh, in the or only 
very peripherally in the very early uh, expression of interest or so. But uh, but the, the supersymmetry was, I would say, one very high on the list. Then there, there, there are many other things. For example, uh, people were interested, are still interested in substructure of quarks. You know, it could happen uh, that uh, one, actually the quarks are not the elementary particles, but they are prions in it somehow. And one would see phenomena like, in a way, in the Rutherford scattering. If you look at very hard collisions, uh, you could see deviations from the dynamics predicted just by scattering of elementary quarks and gluons. Maybe you would see more strong deviations at very hard scattering because there could be some structure inside the quarks. Mm -hmm. So you wanted to have a very good calorimeter. And as I personally was always uh, working on calorimeters also in the UI2 experiment or so, uh, that was certainly for me, and of course not only for me, one of the motivation to build a very good hadronic calorimeter. So we optimized this more, stressed this aspect a bit more than, for example, in the CMS, whereas CMS uh, stressed more maybe the very high resolution with a large magnetic field for muons or so. So you said there are some complementary strengths yeah. indeed. This is, for example, one. Yeah. Uh, so there were these were things that they are still. Uh, we call this a bit uh, uh, generic that uh, the search for exotic physics, and in, in fact, searches from the many hundred publications Atlas and CMS are, are producing. Uh, papers about the uh, searches of exotic particles and, and supersymmetry, they are they are a large part. Uh, I would say maybe, roughly speaking, at least one third. Then there is maybe one third measuring uh, with high precision standard model uh, uh, standard model uh, dynamics and so. And then, of course, there's also a big part of Higgs particle, um, dark matter searches and things like that. Mm -hmm. So these kind of things were already on the the menu, if you want, for uh, guiding the the design. But it's absolutely true. The Higgs was kind of imposed. Again, I use sometimes in, in public lectures or so, I... I say that the Higgs was, I compare it to figure skating. You know, yeah. you have an imposed program, which are the, the, well, the short program, it's called, I think, somehow, where the, the, the skaters have to perform some uh, well-defined uh, things. And then there is what is called in German Kür. How is the three program? Free, yeah. I guess it's called. <laughs> then, of course, these are all these searches for for new physics, for uh, dark matter, for example, substructure, 
technicolor just to give you some extra dimensions and, and so on. There are many, um, of course, microscopic black holes also and things like that. Yeah. Should I ask you if you are disappointed that SUSY supersymmetry hasn't hasn't revealed itself yet, or would <laughs> should I not ask? <laughs> yeah, you can you can ask, and and well, you know, I'm I'm an experimentalist, yeah. and uh, let me answer indirectly. I would be very disappointed if our experiment would turn out to have technical <laughs> failures or misconceptions yeah. that uh, we could not see supersymmetry if it would be within our energy domain. <laughs> Now, I think, uh, of course, it would have been uh, very nice, but we have made uh, a lot of measurements, or my young colleagues have made a lot of measurements uh, which exclude certain energy domains, mass domains for supersymmetry. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think, well, uh, we, have, we have no reason to believe that it was in this low mass range. This is very different from the Higgs. The Higgs particle, there, there were really theoretical arguments, strong theoretical arguments that it had to be, if it exists, Uh, it had to be in this range below lower mass than one uh, TV. For supersymmetry, well, uh, some theorists, of course, were very enthusiastic and told us you will find supersymmetry even before the Higgs and so. Mm -hmm. But uh, it turns out that these were not really uh, any anywhere near solid predictions as the question of, of the Higgs. Mm -hmm. it, may, may I uh, inject an anecdote? Of course. <laughs> in, in fact, of course, one of these people is my friend John Ellis and so, but he made another remark and I once told him he should be careful about that one, about the Higgs. Of course, he always, at some moment, he said, well, you know, It will be for, from for us theoretician much more challenging and interesting if you don't find the Higgs. Now, now I always told him, well, okay, I send you the next time to what is called the Resources Review Board, where we have all the the funding agencies <laughs> twice a year, and you have to report about your experiment. When I was still a spokesperson. And tell tell the uh, the funding agencies, look, it's so great we didn't find the Higgs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Now, just to say, yeah, you can have an emotional. Uh, yes, I would have been very happy if we would have found uh, supersymmetry. It's it's still uh, we have by far not uh, exploited all the potential of LHC. It certainly. It was not just around the corner, as <laughs> sometimes yep. uh, people said. That, that's, that's science. I mean, you explore and uh, it, may be, it may well be that supersymmetry uh, exists, but uh, it could also be that it's beyond the, uh, the present reach of the LHC in the sense, as we said, of course, at some point, you will come 
at the the limit what you can do with the energy available yeah but we are not yet there yeah. so and i i really found your answer interesting that uh you know uh, my machines work because they showed that in the energy range the machines can explore there is no supersymmetry and so that's that's a that's a really good answer but um, of course if there would have been some indications then of course this would help with funding the next you know yeah. generation of accelerators and i think in that sense it's objectively like if you if you want to see progress in physics and new machines then i think it is not the the ideal result that nothing has been seen so far i, I agree with you it's 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 more maybe a bit more it's more difficult yes but also um i think sometimes our community has to be aware that we should not make promises mm. which uh, which are dangerous. I don't want to say any names, but uh, I was not so happy that even very famous or prominent people said, ah, now we have the Higgs, now we... We tackled the, the dark universe, for example, which was meant to, to find the, 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 the dark matter or supersymmetry. Mm. Yes, we tackle it, but uh, one should always be careful. We, we, yeah. we explore. It, it, it's a fine line, right? You have, to, you have to raise expectations to get people excited and ultimately get money, exactly. but, yeah, but yeah, you have yeah, to leave yeah. a way out of your prediction if it doesn't turn out. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, 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 but it's, or or it should be. I mean, it, it's fine if if some if young people do that, but if people in in responsibility functions of, of course, we have to be. One has to be essentially one has to be honest all the time, and that I think is very important. Yeah. Yes. So so let's let's talk about you. You already mentioned funding. So how how does this work with these kinds of large experiments? I mean, there is just to give people uh, a measure of scale. There is, I think, a hundred eighty something organizations now or institutions now part of uh, Atlas from I think around forty countries with thousands of physicists and just probably doesn't even count the engineers who work on the machines. So how do you? get all of this organized? How do you get people to agree? How does this work? Yeah. Okay. That's, of course, a waste, uh, a large, a large thing. And, and indeed, uh, just again, to, to introduce that, um, well, there, there are many, there are also management institutes which study us. We are an interesting <laughs> field to be studied. Yeah. And I have enjoyed the well, many discussions, getting it <laughs> invited to, to give some talks to them or so, or, or discussions. Well, of course, first, uh, the, the most important thing is that um, the <clears throat> community, many universities uh, in countries are interested to pursue Uh, this kind of studies. And CERN, in that case, is, of course, uh, really a very nice institution because it's, it's not the institution just here in Switzerland and France. It's really the research facility in first place 
of uh, all the European countries. Essentially, all are part of of CERN of all the universities also. So uh, that's uh, f- first thing. Then, when the community is 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 united in saying these are the the basic physics they want to study and they they realize that they cannot do it differently than with uh, pooling all the all the resources that of course gives you already a good a good uh, starting point so we did not start completely from zero because there were of course as I said, UA1, UA2, and, and then the, the lab experiments, there were already one knew how to collaborate, but on a, let's say, at least a factor five to 10 lower scale in, in terms of money, and, and almost also in terms of people, maybe five, or so in terms of people. So, uh, the, the funding agencies, the core of the funding agencies through CERN knew already that, uh, well, when one discusses this, they accept the peer reviewing of the scientific soundness of, of the projects or so. And then what, uh, what was really my... Uh, a lot of my work in the big work, my activity was, of course, to, well, uh, somehow find the, the, the colleagues who wanted to work on that, but also somehow to find sufficient interested groups and strong groups for different parts of the detector. Mm-hmm. Then, let me, I can take one example. The... French groups, many of the French groups, uh, they were interested to develop this liquid argon uh, electromagnetic calorimeter. And then my very, very good colleague, and he deserves all the, uh, the merits like, like me, was uh, Daniel Fournier, who had actually the idea how to make this device fast to be used at the LHC. Uh, well, he was able to convince many other French institutes that if they pull their efforts together, uh, they could make really a, a nice part of the experiment. And so he started presenting this, of course, to the French uh, funding agencies and together with, with me, of course, from the central, from CERN and, and other people. And then these uh, requests also were also reviewed by French committees. The French uh, funding agency saw that there are immediately well, maybe 200 physicists, maybe 10 or so of that order, uh, French university or lab teams uh, wanted to work on that. So they started putting this on on their uh, science agenda and, and budget agenda. So, well, that was a relatively easy case, if you want. Uh, of course, in some other places, when I had to discuss a bit more, but to, to get the funding agencies 
agree uh, to collaborate on that was really, it's very important that this went through their physicists. So mm-hmm. it was not, it's not just, for example, the this, this spokesperson, the project leader going to one country and say, we need this or so. I mean, if, if there are not the physicists from that country, then uh, this doesn't work. They will not send you the money or, or the, or the build the detector. So it was always together with, with uh, the community. And, um, of course, then, uh, it was very important to have this, um, backing organization in a way, which also made the peer reviewing, which CERN is. So I have now talked about really the European part, but that helped a very much to then involve the uh, non-European, non-CERN member state uh, teams uh, to come in. I guess all the people from the cancelled SSC now needed a new playground, right? So well, they probably okay. now, now I will I will <laughs> come to that. So that's but already before. Yeah. Uh, okay, CERN had, for example, some initial uh, collaboration with the with the former Soviet Union. First, it was still Soviet Union, and then, of course, when it became more real, it was no more. It was former Soviet yeah. Union. And uh, so I was actually many times in, in Russia, in Dubna, and, and other countries there. And uh, so you started convincing them that they were very, and they, they played a very important role in, in, in uh, the initial phase and, and also now. But in the initial phase construction, it was, of course, also cheaper and uh, they were excellent engineers and physicists. Then there's another chapter, indeed, which was kind of a, of a very unique event with the cancellation of the SSC. That was in, in 93. Now, Uh, part of the, the, so to speak, if I can use this word, the hardcore of the USSSC people, they wanted to work uh, still on this type of physics, maybe at the beginning, something like 600 or so. And uh, then, of course, Again, a lot of uh, previous uh, knowledge of people played a role. Also technologies, of course, there was, for example, uh, groups which also are interested in the liquid argon technology to stay on this one example, but there would be many others. Uh, They were, of course, had a tendency more to be interested in in ATLAS than... uh, Then in the other experiment, those who were interested in crystals for the SSC likewise were had a tendency to go to CMS, but, but there were many, I think really many personal contacts and so, which also played a lot of roles. Mm-hmm. Just to give you one example, <laughs> again, uh, I was in the late, 
uh, very late seventies, I was at, at Slack as a as a postdoc for for two two and a half years mm-hmm. with Burton Richter, and at that time there were there were a, a couple of excellent students, and one of them who is now uh, head in the DOE, uh, one of the department from Berkeley. He was a postdoc. Then when I came back for UA2, he came back to, to CERN as a, as a postdoc at CERN. And of course, we always had uh, good contacts. And so at that time, he was the department head of particle physics in Berkeley when uh, this question came up in the, in the mid-90s when the SSC was stopped. And uh, I, I guess this was... Never a question where he would go. Mm-hmm. So things, I mean, this is just, again, an anecdotal uh, example, but of course, Berkeley was a big fish or is a big fish in the experiment. So that was very nice. So it's it's on that basis then, of course, a serious negotiation with, with the funding agencies happen. I mentioned the Resources Review Board, that is, Actually, a body which is chaired by the CERN research director, where the all the funding agency representatives come to CERN twice a year, where uh, the, the the budget sharing and so are are agreed. Of course, the experiments have to report at that uh, body. Uh, there's one specific for Atlas with all the countries, something like 37 countries for Atlas at this moment, or 38 uh, represented. It's not the same for the other experiments. So it usually happens one, two, three days or so with a different experiment. So there, there are more the formal things where then uh, formal agreements like uh, memoranda of understanding and so are signed by the funding agencies. So, uh, so it's it's an iterative process, of course. Uh, one tries then uh, had to try to get really all the the contribution uh, possible. Uh, there's no there, there was not just a a simple formula that this country has to pay that much or mm. pay to their physicists that much, because uh, there were also many countries which, of course, could not uh, pay at the same level as as uh, Germany or Switzerland per physicist or Japan. Fantastic partner was Japan. Long history, how to get them into Atlas and so um, but this was always, maybe once more I come back, it's driven by the community in a country who wanted to do that. Uh, and only through uh, this community together with what we call the Atlas Management, then, uh, well, could convince the funding agencies yeah. to produce this. Of course, then there came, this sounds all very, Romantic in a certain way. <laughs> of course, then there come also in some interests. Of course, some country want to be very visible, yeah. make a contribution which, which are really their own. 
again, let, let me take the one, one example in Japan. They, they actually had a good design for a thin solenoid. This detector, this magnet, which we have around our tracking detector, which they had designed in a bigger form for an SSC experiment. Mm -hmm. And so they said, ah, we could build this uh, for Atlas. Uh, that would be very, and well, we, we agreed at some point on that. And uh, they delivered, they actually, they built it in, uh, in Japan, famous industry, Toshiba, and uh, with uh, the Japanese National Laboratory, KEK, uh, with engineers designing it for to match in our experiment and so, and uh, so they built it. And the funny thing is, I actually never knew. Nobody knows how much it at the end did cost mm -hmm. because they delivered it. We, well, we had a we had some crediting system where we. Uh, put it in the books for a certain price, as it would have cost in European industry. Probably it did cost them more, but uh, that was not really the point. They, they wanted to build it. We credited them for from the beginning. They knew how much we will credit them. And it was their pride, very much mm -hmm. uh, the pride that they built this. And there are many, many such, such examples. My, my understanding is that the LHC itself, the accelerator, was basically built from CERN's budget to which CERN member countries contribute. And the, the experiment, the experiment is different. Organizations and countries would join and then usually they wouldn't pay money. They would, they would contribute, as they say, in kind, right? They, they, they would deliver a component. Luckily, these detectors are relatively modular so that this is actually feasible, right? And then that's in first, very, very first approximation, right? Now, Of course, we also needed cash. Yes. So, <laughs> so there was also, uh, because there are some components which no country could, could, uh, afford or wanted to build or are not very, are not very sexy to yeah. build in their industry. Let me say this. Yeah. So, uh, of course, it's a mixture of that, yeah. but uh, in general, it's true. The LHC, the machine by large was, uh, was, Financed through the yearly budget of uh, the member states to the to to CERN. Well, again, also in the LHC, the, in all fairness, there are components which some of the countries. Let's go back to the U.S. Of course, CERN agreed that we and that that the United States groups can participate in the LHC, but. They should also contribute a bit to the machine, and they did. Mm -hmm. I mean, but not to the same fractions as, for example, they did to the experiments or one would expect for the experiments. So, uh, so basically, in general, what you said is, is correct. And then there are some corrections. To in, in detail, things are usually more complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and also to say, I mean, it's there were also, well, for example, India built some small uh, magnet elements for the machine because they also, in this case, India is in the CMS experiment. 
And uh, so that was their entry ticket, if you want. Mm -hmm. But Sun was rather generous in, in this. And also, uh, I want to stress this because it's important for, for future uh, such projects. Also, when countries contribute either to the experiment or in particular also to the machine, then for that component or so, the people from the country were, are really involved in, in managing this part or so. It's a, it's a real partnership. Yeah. And as I said, that I think in seen from, from a distance now, that was one of the issues with the SSC, that why there were so few partners going to the SSC because they were not offered a a real partnership. Right. I'm critical here, but uh, as I said, also the the official history of, of kind of official history of the SSC they make this point very strong in this book, which I mentioned, yep. Tunnel Visions. <laughs> Great title, also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so let's go back to the technical aspects. So we, we already said that, um, for example, the fact that the um, the calor calorimeters in Atlas um, were able to also detect relatively low energy particles was a consequence of both the WIMP, SUSI, and the, the, the Higgs potentially being at low energy range or the 100 to 1000 GeV. Range. So, were there other um, concrete technical design decisions that were driven by a particular need? Yeah, there was one which uh, which is a bit special to to Atlas. I can mention one which maybe we haven't really exploited so much, or we didn't need to exploit so much. Let me answer. Let me say two examples. Mm -hmm. One is, one is, Atlas in in the very early nineties or or eighty or even late eighties, people were rather skeptical. Uh, some of them that one would be able to build tracking detectors this inner part around the interaction point, which would work well when the Intensity is, is very, very high. Mm -hmm. Because so, lots of particles have to be tracked at the same time. It, exactly. So people said, well, it would be very nice to have a setup where we are sure that whatever the intensity of the LHC will be extremely high would work. And that is having this a very strong magnetic field in the toroid around outside of the uh, calorimeter, also outside the hadronic calorimeter. So that was certainly an aspect. This, the catchword is to have a independent uh, muon measurement in the outside part of the detector, independent from whatever the mess would be <laughs> in the inside. Now, in fact, uh, for example, this would not be possible in CMS. Now, uh, okay, this this is a is a principle which, well, not with the same magnet configuration, but from the principle 
point of view was something which actually one of the lab experiments also tried to do, mm-hmm. namely the L3 experiment of uh, Professor Ting. They also had a very uh, clean measurement of muons outside only. They could, could do this. So uh, this was a, a principle which uh, I think is, is still, it was, of course, a very valid principle at that time. Today, maybe one would give it a little bit less importance because actually it's fantastic that these semiconductor detectors work uh, work very, very well. Mm-hmm. So the inside, so uh, it's it's less of an issue, but now in Atlas, for example, you measure twice the independently the muon momentum, and then uh, of course put together this increases the precision you can measure. Yeah. You have two measurements, then it's better. Uh, another thing which which uh, was developed more and more and. And now also, of course, for the upgrade and already in the first part of the upgrade are um, detectors which can flag us the existence of uh, short-lived particles, the B and the tau, the tau lepton and the B uh, quark, they decay with decay lengths which are typically even below one millimeter or so, and with very precise pixel detectors just around the interaction point, uh, one can see that the there was a particle which decayed. And uh, that's something which... Uh, well, which turns out to be very useful for many parts of the physics. Mm-hmm. Not only just for B physics like the LHCB experiment does, but this is a very strong signature for many, many of the of the physics, even in supersymmetry or also for top quark physics, because the top quark decays always into a W and the B quark. So you, if you can see that, that there was a B quark actually in the event, you can already reduce very much uh, the background from ordinary collisions. So these are things which, which are, uh, well, which have somehow evolved. And, and we have indeed already a couple of years ago, uh, well, strengthened this inner mm-hmm. most layers of, of the detector for the B physics. And, and of course, this is a very strong emphasis now in the design of the detector uh, upgrade, which will come uh, for 2025 or something. Yeah. Did any one of the sub-detectors or magnet technologies turn out to be the central challenge, stumbling block, problem during the development? Any particular issue or was it all equally challenging? Well, of course, I would say that the magnet in Atlas, which is is huge and and also very, very costly, it's it's a big part of the project money, maybe one quarter or so, Uh, that 
there, there were some steps where uh, one started seeing the the, the limit of uh, what could be done in industry. So a lot, actually, these were really engineering things. So it had to be done at CERN. We had to change. Uh, it was initially maybe foreseen that uh, more of the putting it together in particular will be in industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that was certainly a bit of a headache at some point because, uh, of course, whenever, whenever you make such changes, uh, usually the costs, of course, go up. And uh, well, that's difficult. There were there were challenging moments in the um, electronics in the electronics integrated electronics, which is on the detector still, because it has to be, of course, it has to withstand the high yeah. <clears throat> radiation. If it's in particular in the near, in the detectors near the interaction point where, where the density of uh, particles is so high. So there was there were certainly uh, moments of uh, anxiety, of, of challenge, as you may say. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, things had to be changed. Uh, by the way, something which is also interesting is uh, some of these challenges were actually not the high-tech parts. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's certainly a lesson for future uh, detector builders or general infrastructures. One should not uh, forget to pay due attention to the less sexy parts of of the detector. I mean, like cooling pipes which get corrosion and then uh, they start leaking. Uh, This is, of course, incredible... uh, and um, we are not the only experiment which has suffered such mm-hmm. things. Or, or you have, of course, a lot of piping for cooling liquids, uh, for gases and things like that. Uh, <clears throat> because once the detector is assembled and in space, in place, it's... Uh, not in space, in place. Not yet then in space. It's, <laughs> Soon. Then it's very difficult to access. Yeah, right. Especially when it's running and everything is. Yeah. Well, no, you you can't. Po- of course, it's impossible. Yeah. yeah. Now I was going to say so, in the in the for the ring you have the problem that you have to uh, warm it up and cool it down again. That's not the case for all the components of the detectors. No. So in the ring, this is true. Yeah. If you want to really work on the on the magnet yeah. on the magnetic structure essentially yeah. or the accelerating structure then you would have to work. it's also to some extent true for some parts of the of the experiment namely as i just mentioned i mentioned already the calorimeter electromagnetic calorimeter is using liquid argon yeah. so this is cryogenic and of course the magnet uh, is also cooled down for it has a well in order to operate it's also superconducting magnets so they have to be at uh, 4 4.8 degree kelvin so uh, clearly uh, you would have to to warm up now there's and then there are, there are vacuums in the magnet in order to isolate thermally 
this uh, cold mass, yeah. as we call it, where the conductor is and the things which hold the conductor, uh, compared to the outside. So there are vacuums, things like that, which uh, are not allowed to, to warm up. Just to give you some impression, uh, when you mention that and I talk about the magnet, the, the magnet coils of the toroid system, they are about 25 meters long. And uh, when you uh, cool them down, they retract from both sides about two centimeters. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there are mechanics, it's, it's a formidable mechanical yeah. uh, issue also to to uh, design these magnets to allow for this movement of of the cold mass yeah. in case you have to warm it up. Yeah. So, uh, just to give you again uh, an impression of this, this expansion really happens typically after. Uh, 60, 60, 70 degree Kelvin, most of it. So uh, you would allow maybe the magnet to warm up uh, from the 4.8 or 5 degree Kelvin up to some 30 degree Kelvin. That also happens when you have to extract the current quickly or things like that. Mm -hmm. But you would really want to avoid ever to uh, warm it up above the uh, 60, 70 degree Kelvin. Mm-hmm. And uh, just uh, as, a, as a hint, this is type of things which uh, even now as uh, activities at the detector and the machine are, of course, uh, minimal during this uh, coronavirus uh, time. Uh, these things are kept in a safe mode, uh, and there are some people who have access to CERN to to check this out. And of course, remotely, this can be checked. And so, yeah. So this is a big. This is an important aspect. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there were also uh, trade offs with engineering complexity, and then in the end, money. Right. Um, yeah. I think if I read correctly, then there were originally 12 um, coils were intended for the magnet system yeah, instead yeah, yeah. of eight. You read correctly. And uh, of course, that <coughs> that, was, uh, that was again uh, in the beginning, in the, in the 90s, uh, one of the, the difficult things was to stay within within the budget. Yeah. So the, the, the way this was, maybe I can say, when we were uh, encouraged to work out the technical proposal and then uh, eventually the technical design reports, that means when we were on track of what, to be one of the two general purpose detectors to be allowed, we were always said by the CERN director, but through this resource review board, you have to stay within a fixed budget, 475 million Swiss francs in 1995 uh, currency, just to be precise. And indeed, one of the first uh, things we saw is that uh, this would be very, very difficult. So 
you would then have a choice. You could uh, build still a magnet with 12 coils, but uh, you would have to make strong compromises on other components. For example, making the calorimeter much less good as it is now or things like that. And of course, naturally, the calorimeter people would say, no, no, no. <laughs> the, the magnet people would say, no, no way, and so and so on. So you have to find a compromise. And fortunately, people are, uh, at the end, somewhat reasonable. So indeed, uh, one of the very early measures to take, we had to do, and also to create a little bit of briefing space, was to reduce uh, the number of, of coins. And I must say, nobody, I've never heard anybody complaining about that because the full uh, motivation of this toroid, air core toroid system is that you have a large space where you have magnetic field, but no material. And that, of course, you have even a larger space and no material if you have only eight coils instead of 12. Mm -hmm. The field is a little bit less uniform, but in the meantime, again, that hints to to computing. People are so uh, fantastic in having very, very well performing performing databases with incredible number of points on the grid where you can uh, have a magnetic field. You, you parameterize this uh, the field map. So we don't suffer of that, but we have actually more space, unobstructed space for the muons. Why is this interesting? Because when you want to measure very precisely the trajectory of a muon outside the calorimeter, you can do this much better if it is in air than if it goes through matter. Of course, very bad would be iron, but even the aluminium makes multiple scattering. When we say the muon doesn't interact with matter, it's not completely true. It still makes, uh, well, sometimes even catastrophic interactions, but, but most of the time it interacts really by just Coulomb scattering, roughly speaking, mm-hmm. uh, because it's it's a charged particle and, and uh, even the aluminium, it has some electrons and it scatters from them. So uh, when it goes through matter, it scatters more. And then, of course, you can less well determine really the uh, arc of the, uh, of the deviation. So you measure it more precisely if it's in air than it would go through the matter of the coil. So this was a a, a typical uh, compromise. Of course, all the compromises are how many electronic uh, single cells you want to have in the calorimeter Mm. and the overall dimensions. Of course, you would like to have large overall dimensions because you have a longer lever arm and you understand with a longer lever arm, you can measure more precisely. So uh, these are the the type of uh, compromises. Of course, then there's another compromise is uh, 
the 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 signs of the cabin. Mm-hmm. So you were or you were very clearly constrained by the overall size of the experiment, also from that point of view, because excavation of the cabin was a very expensive uh, part of the whole equation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what was what was more challenging, uh, taming the physicists' expectations or managing the engineers or dealing with project management? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> taming the physicists was, of course, the, the, well, that, that's that's a fun part most of the time, mm. not always. <laughs> they're, they're, of course, some of them are very big egos, egos but, but um, as I said, at the, at the end, People were, and that's, I'm really happy that it was working, working okay. I mean, there were very, very few occasions that somebody left or so because he or she thought that is not the right thing. But, um, well, actually, I think it was, I personally liked very much to work directly with the engineers also. Well, of course, they were technical coordinator or so from from the team but uh, i was feeling close to them in often for example for the magnet mm-hmm. and uh, i've always felt uh, the arguments were correct of course uh, it was always a bit of a compromise of course you know the physicists for example for the for the calorimeter there of course you don't want to have support structures because uh, that's no good that fakes the measurement of uh, of for example the electrons or the photons yep. but then uh, it's good that you have engineers which make sure that you can also hold this whole uh, device of 4000 tons that it doesn't fall to the floor and so so <laughs> okay it, it it was i think that was a, a interesting part which uh, which was a good a good compromise and one could find solutions of course that i think hard challenge were sometimes with industries with mm-hmm. you have contracts and uh, well uh, CERN these legal things were then using the CERN administrative uh, uh, machinery or or maybe the US used their Brookhaven uh, administrative uh, machineries. That was also sometimes uh, challenging. I, I, of course, we could not have done it without them. But uh, just to give you some examples again, I mean, it's, it doesn't help you so much to have, for example, uh, somebody doing electronics component that the contract has some penalties if they deliver late. Mm. Fine, it costs a little bit less, but at the end you need the components, independent of yeah. how much, if they get penalties or not. It's not real competition, you can't easily move to another vendor. Yeah, yeah, the, the, that's what I mean. Yeah. The procedure then to do that, in a few occasions one had to do that, but it was not, not an easy, it's not something you, as a physicist, you can you can solve so easily. And, and of course... Uh, As I said, most uh, most of the time in such cases, this uh, also meant that, of course, you it became more expensive. Of course, uh, again, fortunately, they were not 
too many such occasions and one had we were uh, happy to have funding agencies which were uh, understanding once you explain and okay they they did their utmost to they wanted uh, the experiments and CERN and LHC of course to succeed and that was the very big thing which made it go at the end I think Well, I mean, it's not surprising that uh, when you try to do something that is this new and different and big and complex that that there are some unexpected things. Like, you know, whenever you build some stupid bridge of which humankind has built thousands, there's budget overruns. So it's yeah. obvious that here it's not going to all be smooth sailing. It can't be, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's the, well, uh, as Lynn Evans, the, the project leader of the machine, always said, well, it's, uh, we build... We built a prototype, yeah. only one, and uh, because of course also the machine, uh, well, had a difficult time when uh, when some of the industries uh, had difficulties and it became more expensive yeah. and uh, yeah, but well, at at the end, I think is it was nowhere comparable with what happened. At the SSC, oh, yeah. fortunately. Well, uh, the result is certainly different. There is a machine. <laughs> <laughs> there is a machine and there's a community. Yeah. And so uh, so an- uh, another one of these comparative questions, what was more uh, maybe, I don't know, interesting or, you know, design, construction, early operations and tests? I mean, you were all involved in all of them, so... Yeah. Well, yeah, it was, a, it was certainly a long... A long uh, journey. Yeah. <clears throat> this is this. Uh, yeah, of course, it was, there were highlights. I mean, yeah. like uh, when when there were really the first collision. That was certainly uh, a very great great moment. Or, but also things when uh, when we had the first piece of detector installed in the cavern, mm-hmm. something like. 2004, really, the first active piece. And, uh, yeah, 2004, and indeed. Uh, well, no, I, I enjoyed all, all these, uh, these stages. You mentioned something which is, which is very important, <clears throat> namely tests. Mm-hmm. There was, of course, a lot of uh, prototype detectors first and then uh, parts, modules, were put into uh, beams, particle beams at CERN, and uh, they were they were checked that they, they work the way they should. And one also already then um, developed actually the analysis algorithms <clears throat> which are later on used in the overall experiment. I mean, of course, then developed much, much further, but this phase was very important. And I think uh, was also, actually was, I think, a nice phase also for the education of, uh, of young physicists, mm-hmm. you know, many, many generations of, of people who made uh, their thesis, uh, because... On a test beam, they could actually 
directly go to the detector part, uh, find out by themselves. Once now installed, uh, this is much more difficult and complex. Yeah. And of course, uh, well, there's a new phase now developing next generation detectors for the upgrade. And, and again, I see they will, people have, of course, started to use a lot of uh, these test beam facilities, as one says. Yeah. Since you mentioned upgrades, let's close with a little look at the future. Um, right now, um, the LHC and the experiments are in, I think, long shutdown three, right? Two. Two, okay. Yeah. Where um, a main goal is to increase luminosity, right? So you get more intense beams. Uh, somewhat, yeah, yeah, not not so much more. Yeah, the but big upgrade get, is LS three, yeah. right? That's what I. Yeah. 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 But um, to, how, how do you keep Atlas capable of dealing with probably an even higher collision rate from the higher intensity? Um, so what what do you do to upgrade the machine in terms of um, performance and maybe resolution and and what are basically hard limits what which are the things you cannot go beyond with without building a new completely new detector so at this uh, moment indeed we are in ls2 uh, long shutdown 2 there will be another run coming for a few years For this uh, first, in, in fact, we have three phases of up upgrades. The phase zero, I mentioned already, namely that when I said, well, we see that with uh, this in the most detector, pixel detectors, we can see better uh, tag uh, the, the, the B quarks. So this we have already done, and that was uh, put in in LS1. And this was used for the last run and worked very nice. Now, in LS2, namely the shutdown we are now, we are already uh, replacing innermost muon detectors in the forward, in the end caps, what, how we call it, in the forward directions, you know, at the edges of, of, the, uh, of the cylinder. Yeah. Because the... Intensities there were so high that we see a lot of uh, background hits and we want to make this cleaner and we want to, to build it such that it will be already done for the big upgrade, which will come in towards 2025. Uh, we also improve quite some of the... Uh, Algorithms for the triggering, for selecting the events from the electronics. In some cases, some of the electronics cards had to be changed. They're being changed, things like that. But then the big change really comes, as I said, with a time scale of 2025, where we will replace the innermost part of the detector, this tracking detector, the pixels and strips, and we also have uh, small gas tubes there, transition radiation detector. This will be replaced by a completely new uh, 
tracking detector, all based on semiconductors, which will be able to withstand a much higher intensity in terms of radiation hardness, but also in terms of uh, giving us um, more precise information in terms of granularity, because mm -hmm. the upgrade of the LHC means to increase the intensity of uh, the, the number of collisions per uh, bunch crossing. The, the bunches cross about, roughly speaking, 30 to 40 million times at, per second, mm -hmm. uh, packages of bunches. And today, uh, there are typically 40, 30, 40 pairs of proton which interact. Uh, and potentially one of these interactions may be interesting. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, the others also, they may give some, some tracks, or do give some tracks in the detector. With the increased luminosity in the high luminosity LHC phase, which starts 2025, there will be more typically 200 such oh. uh, collisions per crossing of uh, two bunches, 30 to 40 million times per second. Yeah. So uh, that, uh, you see, it's a big challenge in disentangling really uh, all these uh, 200 uh, collisions and fishing out the, the, the interesting one, including the fact that, for example, for this interesting one, you also want still to see if there was a big quark mm -hmm. or, a, or a tau lepton, namely uh, a particle which has flown maybe a fraction of a millimeter or a millimeter away from the initial collision point and has decayed there. So this within this mess of 200 events, you want to see this. So for that, this is being uh, built and uh, developed and built is the biggest part. Then uh, a lot of the electronics will of reading out all the calorimeter channels, all the uh, muon channels or so will be um, will be changed in order to allow well higher event rates, but also in order to allow much more sophisticated real-time um, pattern recognition, if you mm -hmm. want, to select interesting events. Also, things which, again, you may and already one does a little bit, but we'll, we'll do much more uh, profiting from machine learning and so at, at that stage and uh, already at the stage of when the collision occurred. So, this type of, of thing will be will be changed and that's that's a big big upgrade work. Of course you cannot change really for example the magnetic structure, mm. the magnet you cannot this will take years to take the experiment apart and putting back many years that is not thinkable uh, or the, the calorimeter 
structure inside. In this you cannot change. You can change, as I said, the electronics, but but not more than that. So that gives you an idea of of, of the limitation. Now, for the machine, at the moment the LHC runs at uh, 13 TV collision energy, mm-hmm. six and a half uh, TV per beam. The design is 14 TV. Uh, it will be seen whether uh, one can push really the magnets to the full 14, I mean, 7 TV per beam, 14 TV or not. Um, it's a little bit a balancing act where to go because at some point uh, our community is a burned child, as one says, because uh, we should not forget that in 2008 there was a quench uh, in a superconducting connection which uh, then had quite catastrophic uh, effects and delayed the machine for some 15, 15 months. It was a lot of uh, damage which had to be repaired. Yeah. It's, of course, not in our interest to, to have another uh, such event and uh, delay the machine. So the machine people will carefully check whether... Uh, it's really worthwhile going from 13 to 14 TV or not. Mm-hmm. Now, to go beyond that is uh, barely, is not possible. Well, you find maybe some of the people say, well, maybe you can go to 15 TV or so, but uh, I think these are on the optimistic side. Yeah, I mean, the big limiting factor is the capability of the bending magnets, basically. Yes, exactly. And you could replace all of them. And I think this is, in fact, an idea that if um, yeah. the, instead of building a bigger tunnel for the FCC, potentially might one thinks about replacing exactly. the LHC in the same tunnel with stronger magnets. That's indeed a, uh, a scenario which is discussed in the in the framework of the the planning for the future, what is called the uh, kind of European strategy for particle physics, yeah. which takes uh, a long term view. Um, well, I think it. So, what one could reach, maybe with uh, with magnets of the similar type as foreseen for the FCC. Mm-hmm which still have to be developed, yes, which are not, right. not done, that one could eventually, um, well, essentially double the field. So you would get to, let's say, 30, 33 TV maybe, collision energy, which, which, is a, which is a substantial step. We should not... Of course, the series says, well, we, we, are not, we want 100 TV sure. or so, but... But uh, of course, you would like yeah. to have one the TV, but but uh, already doubling the energy would be a very substantial step. However, um, one has to weigh this against the fact that this would still be a very expensive machine. Um, mm-hmm. So, okay, well, it's a 
question of how do you optimize really your resources. Of course, this will be faster than uh, the other option. Um, the other option is a 100-kilometer new tunnel for the FCC. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah. So, okay. And then there is the opposite. Also, some people say one could put the, it would be nice to have the tunnel and then one could put in, we know how to build maybe a little bit cheaper even today, the LHC magnet. Yep. So, but you will get about the same result. I mean, it's okay. Maybe a little bit more. You would maybe go to 45 TV or so. But as I said, these are all questions which, uh, which today I don't think anybody knows. Yeah. The answer, but uh, it's good to to work out this scenario, and uh, yeah, we'll see what. There is at the moment no no physics hint, so yeah. exploration is, of course, what we would do and uh, what science should do, but uh, we have to do it in a in a way which uh, which is which is optimal, which is uh, yeah. efficient. I mean, again, one should one should not forget. I, I like the FCC, but one should not forget that one has to be aware of all the all what it would mean. Thinking back at the time of the SSC, where they mm. maybe uh, wanted to make a step which was really a bit too big, yeah. without knowing all or thinking through all the consequences. Yeah. I mean, there is this idea of doing the lab slash LHC story again, right? You you dig the 100-kilometer tunnel and then build a, a lepton collider where the magnet, the bending magnet challenge is not as uh, strong because you yeah, have… Yeah, it would be much easier, yeah, yeah. And then you have a little bit more time to develop the next generation of, of magnets. And even if that doesn't work, you can potentially still put the LHC-style magnets into the bigger tunnel. So I… This is this is one of the indeed one of the things one can uh, yeah. certainly discuss. Now, um, remember, at some point, I also said uh, you, one has to make an overall plan. We are, of course, we we are European here, and we think of uh, European strategy, but uh, one can also think of such a specific Higgs factory. This would, what you just mentioned, yeah. putting an electron machine in a 100-kilometer tunnel, that is to make a Higgs factory or maybe a, a Higgs factory which can go to a little bit higher to also produce top-anti-top pairs. Yeah. Um, there are elsewhere in the world, in other regions, also ideas about that. Uh, I would consider personally, this now my very personal yeah. view, that such a machine is really complementary to a Hadron Collider, mm -hmm. and I could very well imagine that, uh, for example, uh, a linear collider in Japan, which is much discussed since a long time, yeah. this would exactly be The, the thing they want to build, if they would, that would be, uh, would of course be something personally I would not think would need all to be at CERN. It's also China has also similar yeah. uh, 
cement plants, in their case with a ring machine. Um, in the best of all worlds, I would really think it would be actually healthy to have also elsewhere a, a machine and the Higgs factory would be nice. Yep. There are other, other ideas which uh, one has to put into the equation. It's uh, One could also collide muons, not only electrons. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a smaller machine, but uh, so far the technologies are not in a mature level, uh, in my mind, something which which is very worthwhile uh, developing, maybe for in particular also for for engin- there are a lot of engineering challenges there, and and then <clears throat> even beyond that, of course, different uh, accelerating technologies like Wakefield yep. or so, where R and D is being made. Yep. That's very good. But of course, that is for uh, for a further future. Yeah. I don't think personally. Uh, certainly, I will not, unfortunately, uh, see this uh, ever being used in a real collider that uh, is excluded. But uh, I would wish very much that, of course, my young friends would <laughs> see it. Last question, um, yeah. and I realize it might be. One that's not so easy to answer. I mean, we just talked about how the community took 10 or 20 years to design and implement something like Atlas. But let's say the FCC were built uh, with, let's say, 40. Well, basically, there will be a new tunnel, a new cavern, and you will be in charge or your younger uh, clone. Not me, not me. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, how would they, if, if you did an Atlas++ plus plus for something like the FCC, how would such a detector look like or or what has changed in since atlas was kind of conceived um significantly how how would you go about building such a detector in let's say 20 years can you say anything about that well there there are younger colleagues who have made some conceptual uh, designs for i mean sketches Mm -hmm. as we did uh, at some point um so there are some ideas. I mean, one is actually, well, it's kind of taking features from, I don't want to say it's like CMS plus Atlas, it's a, but, well, there's nothing wrong, of course, learning. One should learn sure. always, as we did before, which would be um, actually using a solenoid, but more than one solenoid. So a solenoid, not a toroid magnet, a solenoid, but differently to CMS, one would not need to have a return yoke, which makes it so heavy. I was Mm -hmm. making this joke about about the heavy thing. Because if it's deep underground, people have found out that uh, one could safely have this detector without any shielding for the return for the for the field return but then it's very important that uh, physics in the forward directions are uh, also covered because just um, for example a higgs particle can go with a very small angle in particular at the at the 100 tv 
proton-proton mm-hmm. <clears throat> collision can go in the forward direction, so the detector will be longer. Mm-hmm. N- not not much thicker than Atlas, but it will be it will be basically longer, and so you would have also in the forward and in the backward directions. Uh, dedicated parts with solenoids. So it's not all one big solenoid like in CMS, but would be kind of a family, if you want, of solenoids. So that that's one of the things. Of course, then, <clears throat> point of view of, of a calorimeter or so, you don't actually need to make it so much thicker because a little bit, but only essentially logarithmically mm-hmm. from uh, as the energy increases or so. So that one would certainly, one could think of similar type of things where people would be much more uh, advanced is certainly in, in the, uh, again, in the semiconductor yeah. detectors inside. Tracker. Uh, with kind of uh, 3D measurements everywhere with points, with high resolution points, with 3D measurements, including timing mm-hmm. information. Of course, if you have very precise timing information, you can also uh, disentangle this uh, mess of simultaneously occurring events because uh, depending where where the vertex is, uh, the timing will be different. Mm-hmm. So that uh, is uh, one of the direction. In fact, even already some uh, first generation timing detectors will be tried in the uh, in the up or tried will be built or are proposed to be built for the Atlas and the CMS high luminosity upgrade. So mm-hmm. one will learn to work with such detectors. So such type of things. Mm -hmm. But it will still be an onion with basically the same components, tracker, ECAL, HCAL, muon system, and magnets, of course. Yes, yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. But but also, uh, one has learned that uh, the challenge is, even at the very, very high uh, energy colliders, you need to be able to measure relatively light objects. Like the Higgs particle, of course, will be a very important uh, particle uh, in order to look for new physics also, not just to study the Higgs. Yep. but also. And the Higgs happens to be a low mass, relatively speaking, low mass particle. So uh, 125 GV, if for example, it decays into two Zs and then the, the Zs into two leptons. Each of these leptons is, well, it's sometimes boosted a bit, but it's low low momentum. So you have to to find these relatively low momentum uh, tracks and so on. Yep. So that's a big challenge. It's not that you go to 100 TV and then all your tracks are yeah. 1 TV or more. That's that's a wrong perception. Right, 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 right. All right. So I think we, okay. we're we basically through. Um, is there anything else you want to say about your, probably fair to say, your, your life's work? I mean, this is, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, this is something you spend a significant part of your yeah, career and being one of the leading figures there. I mean, I'm sure you feel a little bit of, 
I don't know how you say, like it's your baby, your you know father thing. <laughs> That's what it says on the uh, somebody wrote yeah. this <laughs> Now, well, we didn't talk about one aspect, but which is uh, very important is, of course, the collaboration. How do mm -hmm. the work uh, well, peacefully, ambitiously, but peacefully uh, within many thousands of people? I must say, I, and building up this collaboration, that was something uh, which, well, yeah, which, which I consider was quite an uh, important part of my life. Mm -hmm. yes. and, and, well, I, I enjoy it now. I have many, as I always say, I have many, many friends all over the world. Yeah. And, and also, I hope very much that, uh, that of course, Of course, we will go back to a, a phase when we can still again work like before. We, we haven't talked about the present yeah. situation. I, would, I think there are even two challenges, right? One is the acute one of Corona and how do you physically collaborate and do you still get enough money when potentially more money goes into biology research, right? Yeah. But the other thing is also that the world seems to be on a path to, let's say, generally more competition, less integration. So it's not obvious that, for example, the US and China and Europe join forces to build a joint big collider. It's, I don't think that's obvious. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you are absolutely right. And in fact, I was uh, just also having video conferences with some uh, senior colleagues from the CERN Council and so on. And uh, as I mentioned, I mean, uh, of course, I talk with with the CERN director general because of personally we have yep. always worked together. She was a, a student in the UI too, and so. And I'm very worried about uh, about this aspect that uh, people may less, no more, be so willing to collaborate. That we lose this part. I hope. We will be able to build it up again. Uh, this, in the first thing, what I said, I was just meant also the practical thing. For example, yeah. the Atlas pieces were built well all over the world, and of course the teams came from I don't know from the US, from Italy, from Australia even, and so to put it together, they work in in teams together. In, These are things. The building the infrastructures or so cannot be done by home office <laughs> and uh, and video conferencing. Yeah. Now and we have a lot of data to analyze, and that's at the moment works works well, yeah. uh, astonishingly well. People keep in contact, but building even the the upgrades and so building things. Yeah. Uh, There we will have uh, new challenges to come. I mean, my, That's sure. my personal estimate is that the concrete problem of physically meeting as people uh, will go away because I guess there will be a vaccine at some point for this thing. But the the other, let's say, world collaboration perspective challenge, I think, is perhaps a more long-term and therefore uh, maybe more problematic issue. It's just my personal opinion. I mean, I don't know, obviously. Yeah, Well, of course, we don't know, yeah. but but okay, yes, I, I share very much your worry. And as I said, yeah. I, with some senior colleagues, I have we have recently also talked about 
about this. How uh, for for the young people now they don't think of that, but but <laughs> I think the, the, those who will take or as they are now in council or so taking the responsibilities, they have to think about that, and and I hope uh, we will have. Uh, I hope Europe. Let me say this way: I hope really Europe. And, and Switzerland is also in Europe for that, will uh, really give uh, an example of uh, not losing what we have acquired in collaboration. When CERN was founded after the Second World War, not directly, but kind of in that period, um, one of its main missions beyond physics was also to act as kind of a condensation point for collaboration throughout Europe. There was a little bit of a political mission, right? So oh, yes. maybe it has to play that role again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No? yeah. No, no, you are absolutely, yeah, I share that. Yeah. All right. This was okay. very, very interesting. Thank you very much, Peter. This was cool. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. All right. Thank Thanks you. Ciao. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you very much, Peter Jenny, for taking the time. You, <laughs> in total, spent quite a bit of time with my book and uh, the podcast and stuff. So I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. I hope everybody liked it. Um, you are now well prepared um, for the next episode. You might want to revisit uh, the episode about the di discovery of the Higgs because we're going to basically uh, start from there, kind of. And we'll discuss how a physicist uses the data that comes out of the LHC and the Atlas detector to actually discover and or measure stuff. All right, so um, that's it for today. Um, nothing else to add. I'm gonna um, go out now. The weather is nice. Finally, the corona restrictions have been lifted. We can fly again and you can go out uh, and uh, you know enjoy nature without thinking that this might be somehow not quite what you should do um like you should anyway whatever i'm rambling <laughs> talk to you in 10 days ciao hello markus here for omega tau Omega Tau is an independent and non-commercial podcast produced by Nora Ludwig and me, Markus Fötter. We are on the web at omegataupodcast.net. You can also find us on Facebook, Google+, and Twitter under the handle Omega Tau Podcast. We love to hear from you through a comment on the website, a post via our social network channels, or via an email at feedback at omegataupodcast.net. We also always appreciate recommendations of Omega Tau to your friends directly or through social media. Omega Tau is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivative License 3.0. This means that you can freely share the content, but you cannot use it for commercial purposes and you cannot distribute derivative works. You always have to attribute the source, omegataupodcast.net. Any quotations or citations of our work are perfectly fine, of course. For more details on the license, see creativecommons.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast and talk to you next time. 